All right, Matty Ross, welcome to Conversations with the Code 9 Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us today. No worries, Mark. Thanks for asking me on. Uh, pleasure. Sure. Mate, um, you're a ill health retired Victoria police member. Yeah, um, that's right. 23 yeah. years. Three years now. Um, cool. Now, you've had, now that has gone quick. Um, now, you've had a long history of basically service to the community. You wanted to give us a, a brief outline of that? Yeah, sure thing. Um, I started, I joined the army in 1985 at the age of 19. They should write a song about that. Being at 19. <laughs> um, then I stayed there for five years, had a bad motorcycle accident whilst on leave and basically was told I would never be able to go back to my combat unit. And that's kind of why I joined the army. And uh, so I got healthy. I got as fit and healthy as I could. And I ended up joining um, Her Majesty's Office of Corrections and spent four years primarily working at Pentridge Prison. A lot of people will remember that place. <laughs> I don't know what you like with swearing on the podcast. <laughs> Sorry? Tough place. Yeah. Um, and I stayed there four years and was involved in one riot, was the first on the scene of a few murders in there. And um, yeah, and then 23 years as a police officer. So, yeah, there's a couple of things up there on the wall behind me. Um, certificates of service and the oath I took and uh, me, just that one there, me saluting Neil Comrie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so 23 years there. And, um, yeah, look, I, there were good times, bad times, but I rem it's mostly the people I remember, the great, the great people I met there, you know? Um, yeah. There were some crappy jobs we had to do. Um, and I spent a lot of my time in the highway patrol, um, seeing the results of um, bad character. And not necessarily the fatalities all the time. It was the people who were still alive and trigger warning here for any... I don't know if you put a trigger warning at the start of your podcasts or not, mate. But, um, but uh, you know, people, people screaming in agony. Yeah, hold, hold one girl's hand while the fireys work to get her out while she's pinned by the dashboard. Yeah, sort of thing while the ambos on the in the passenger seat trying to um, you know, sort her out. And yeah, him, him, and him looking me in the eye and just kind of just shaking his head briefly like that, and here's me lying my ass off saying things are going to be okay. Yeah, you know, um, that 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 sort of thing. Um, yeah, which is, well, you know, it, it led to the ill health retirement, the diagnosis of PTSD back in 2015. Me trying to get back in after only um, three months of treatment. And that was in August 2015 I was diagnosed. Then in April 2016, you'll, you'll remember this actually, um, I was almost back at work full time. I was back at work four days a week. And... Um, Two weeks after my 50th birthday, I was standing, again, trigger one, I was standing on the edge of the EJ Witten Bridge. Yeah. Looking, looking into the blackness down there because as, as a copper, from my police experience, I knew it didn't have suicide screens at the time. It was higher than the Westgate and you actually land on rocks at the bottom. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a one-way trip. And I, one of my stations was at Altona North and I remember we... We went to a job where someone actually had jumped off the Westgate and they ended up with a chipped heel and mild hypothermia. 
<laughs> getting airlifted to the Alfred by um, Paul Air. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the doctor ringing me and saying, are you sure this lady actually jumped? I've just driven her car from the top of the bridge and I've got a suicide note in the air. So, yeah, pretty sure. So, yeah, and that was um, that caused a, uh, a bit of a ruckus on a certain Facebook page. Yeah, yeah. That Because no, I don't think it was just me because there was someone else in a bit of trouble at the same time that same night. And, um, yeah, it, it led to uh, a few rules being changed on that uh, Facebook page. We're always <laughs> evolving. Yeah. We're evolving with the times. Yeah. But, but that that, that was really the start of recovery in more ways than one because it led me to, like, two sergeants came and picked me up from work, uh, took me into police welfare, and that led me on the journey towards 17. Um which for those who don't know is a, a specialist PTSD ward as part of the Austin Repat Hospital. Unfortunately, it's only got 25 beds and um, it needs a lot more. Um, and yeah, and from there, it's kind of been, it, it's been like six, five years of recovering uh, yeah. and mentally. And booze, you know, booze played a big part in that as well. And now and again, I still fall off the I still fall off the wagon. You know, I wish I could tell. I almost said I wish I could tell people out there that I was a success story, but in my eyes, I am because I've I've never given up. Like even when I relapse, it, it's a case of never throwing my hands in the air and saying, um, "That's it. I'm going to finish my life in a bottle." Because I've been on a few. Um, Deaths, 80, 80, I was going to say 83s, but I'm trying not to jargonize too much. Um, even though that's primary audience, I guess. But, um, you know, I've been to a few deaths, you know, people who've died um, at home alone and like their bodies are yellow, their bellies are bloated from the liver, diseased liver, yep. stuff like that. And, um, you know, look, some of them, one one bloke in particular sticks in my memory. He, he looked like he'd just been liberated from a, concentration camp at the end of world war ii i reckon he weighed no more than 40 kilo yeah yeah um and you know and and that's look i like to think my drink my drinking started off fun um actually no it started off weird it started off weird because my dad managed a funeral parlor and we lived in in a three-bedroom apartment above this funeral parlor and i was probably 12 13 at the time and I was 13 years old when I saw my first body and that was downstairs helping dad. And, uh, how did you react to that? Um, with curiosity mainly. Um, and I guess that comes from being or having grown up with, with, uh, being Christian, you know, like that, that it's, it's not the person lying there. Yeah. Shell, whatever, yep. made, whatever made them, them and whatever you decide to call that, your soul, your spirit, your whatever, that's gone now. That's not yep. there. Um, so what made them them has flown on to the next life, iteration, heaven, wherever. Yep. Um, but uh, it was really strange because um, she'd been in her flat on a hot Melbourne weekend for a few days and being of... Um, ethnic origin her family wanted to see her like they wanted an open casket and she was a bit on the nose 
And so dad sprayed Glen 20 around and he's looking for stuff. And he's told me to go to the storeroom of downstairs. And um, I've brought out this tin of toilet lollies. You know what goes in a male urinal? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's pulled the blanket, he's pulled the shroud back and just sprinkled these around. So it smelled a bit like a hospital disinfectant, but it smelled better than what she did at the time. But um, when I got to year 11 and 12 at school and I was under pressure from the folks to start doing well at school and that the company would put on um, slabs for the blokes who worked there and they would be kept in the big fridge downstairs. And so I'd go down and sneak the odd um, scan of VB with um, corpses lying on trolleys. Not all the time. I mean, the, the, it wasn't all, the fridge wasn't always occupied, but I would sneak downstairs and um, sneak the odd tinny in year 11 and 12 at school on the weekends. And my dad actually suffered from alcoholism and um, he, was a, he was a wily old bugger and he must have smelt it on me because I came upstairs one night and he's, he's just done that like Vulcan nerve pinch that the parents do on the back of your tricep there. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And he's just gone, never on a school night. Right. So, never on a school night. And I kept to that. For yeah. a couple of, of course, and then I joined the army. And uh, there's a bit of a culture there, let's just say. Yeah. Of uh, working hard and playing hard. And you, you, you might have seen these um, memes on the internet. You know, I was in the army. We were the fittest alcoholics ever. Yeah. Um, you know, we worked hard. We played hard. and um, But there was actually, you could be charged in the military if you failed to make a morning parade, they actually had a charge called self-inflicted wounds. And if you were unfit for duty because of something you did to yourself, um, and, and that didn't, I remember one bloke being charged with that because he got sunburned. He, he got badly sunburned. And the, the, the gist was because he was in control of how much sun exposure he got, he, he was he was charged with his offence. But as long as you turned up for work, no matter if you were swaying and you could find a hidey hole for the day, it was pretty much, you know, um, as long as... So long just long just quickly, yeah. so yeah, like I asked you to come on to have a talk about um, what it's like um, to being uh, addicted to alcohol. Uh, yeah. Now, at this stage when you're... In, in two in, words, it sucks. It sucks, yeah, no, without doubt. Um, so at this stage in the army, did you? Is this the first signs of being have, having that addiction, or is it, does that come later on in life? It, it comes later on. Um, alcoholism is progressive. Um, so, uh, uh, and how it progresses is up to the individual. Like how some people like. I've seen blokes in my 12-step program that I'm a part of come into the rooms in their early 20s. Yeah. You know, and uh, and they're, they're drinking to blackout even then. Yeah. And by blackout, I don't mean unconsciousness. It's like you're, um, you know, you've got no memory of what happened before. You're kind of like walking and talking, but you've got no memory of... It's yeah. like Robin Williams describes it, describes it quite funnily. Um, you know, he says, you're about to have sex with a hamster. My, uh, my, my, your, my bro I'm your brain. I'm about to switch off. <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, but I used to, how my alcohol progressed is it started out as fun. Like we, I had a lot of fun yeah. in the yeah. um, I, There's one drink 
I don't touch, I haven't touched since, and it's been tequila because I remember on one army on a military base, one happy hour and pay night, pay night was happy hour where it was half price, price drinks. And back when I was in the army in the eighties, that was 50 cent pots. Yeah. So you're paying 50 cents for a pot. And I was drinking tequila by the pot on a, on a Friday, on, on this Thursday night, pay night. And I was crook as a dog the next day, but I'd still turned up to work. And my sergeant, actually warrant officer, who was in charge of me at the time, he said, Gunnar Ross, he said, the, 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 the canteen's now open. Go get me a two-litre bottle of Coke. And he's given me a $10 note. And he said, while you're there, get one for yourself. Because he obviously had a hard night at the sergeant's mess the night before as well. And I was crook all weekend. And it, that's one thing I haven't touched since. You know? um, but how it progressed for me is it started out as fun. Then it was fun with problems, like taking sickies, stuff yeah. like that. And then it was just problems. And before I started trying to get seriously off alcohol, um, I was drinking alone in a dark room with the curtains drawn. Yeah. That's how my drinking finished. I mean, and look, no one, and, you know, having been in the job I've been in, I've spoken to, pl I've spoken to plenty of drugs. And some of the stories they tell, I mean, no one leaves high school or, you know, or whatever level you got to, no one leaves school with the ambition to be living in the Flagstaff Gardens, clutching a brown paper bag or a, or a box of wine to your chest, you know? Um, one, one bloke I met as part of some of the things I volunteer with, um, he was from the Commission Flats in Fitzroy and he used to be a professor of music at Melbourne University. Yeah. Here he is in line for a soup kitchen. Yeah. It takes everything away from you, man. It's... So, when did, when did it be when did you first become apparent that you've um, that it, that it had a, that alcohol had a hold of you that you needed it rather than drinking for fun and enjoyment or social or whatever when did it become that I need to have it? Um, yeah, that that's it's a good point you make, Mark. Because yeah, alcohol ceased to become something I wanted to do, and it became a necessity. You know, I, about four o'clock, I was never a day drinker, but about four o'clock in the afternoon, the hands would start getting the shakes and my anxiety would go through the roof and I knew how to fix it. And it, and it, that, this is the thing with alcohol and I guess any addiction is that, it, you know, it works and you know, it works immediately. So it becomes your go-to, even though you could be reason, you could, I've read this blog of a bloke who was a nuclear physicist for crying out loud and a CEO of billion dollar companies uh, like nuclear type companies. And at lunchtime, or he, he would have to interrupt board meetings to go and vomit up blood into a bag in the bathroom. This is where it takes other, otherwise, you know, not every alcoholic is a, um, you know, is, is a low bottom skid row park bench too. You know, I, I'm, I'm, in the lingo, what they call a high bottom drunk. I mean, I own my own house. I own a car. I own a motorcycle. I, I was able to hold down a job. These things didn't, but it didn't make me any less of an alcoholic. My my rock bottoms, as as, as the saying goes, mine happened in here, and yeah. it, and it was also tied up with some of the, the the PTSD stuff, and it was almost a relief when I got that diagnosis back in 2015 because my drinking went 
really, really bad then because I thought my mind then thought, now that, this is why I drink. It's slight, this PTSD has been slowly building up in my system and I've just been trying to suppress it. I mean, I joined, and I'm not blaming any, there's no blame attached here to anyone or any organisation, but I joined the police force in a time where if, you, if you'd had a shit, a shit job, you know, and the sergeant would take you to the pub for a, a hot debrief with a cold beer. Yeah. What a thing, that's how things were done. You'd stay there for however long, talk about what we did well, what we didn't do so well, what we could have improved on, but no one got hurt. So it was a good, it was a good outcome for everybody. And let's see everyone back here at seven o'clock tomorrow morning, ready to go. And you just get that like obligatory email from welfare. But as you know yourself, back in the early nineties, when I joined, there was that culture of you just deleted that email. Yeah. It, we heard you were involved in an incident blah, 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 we're here if you need us sort of thing. Thankfully, that's, well, you're still in the job. I, I hope it's improved from then. Um, but, you know, we had the peer support officer program now um, or back then, of which I was one. Um, and other things. But, but yeah, look, it, it, it's, it's a really horrific place to be, Mark, when I know I had a problem. And this was the thing. I wanted to stop. I actually, I knew I had to stop and I wanted to stop, but I was unable to. So is the power of it that strong over you that you just basically have to do it? Yeah. Yep. That, that, that's addiction. That's addiction, you know, and these people who say it's one of those things that, and I'm sorry to use a cliche here. I actually used the coat and coat on the Code Nine Facebook page uh, only a couple of weeks ago. If you understand it, I'll never have to explain it to you. Yeah. I have to explain it to you. You'll never understand. So as an addict or the spout, uh, you know, partners of addicts, people who live with uh, addicts or alcoholics, you know, it's like a junkie brain. I will tell a lie even when the truth will suffice perfectly. Yeah. You know, I'll have to embellish it or I'll, or I'll make something up. You know, that's, that's what booze does to you. And I'd love, you know, I'd love to sit, be able to sit here and say, my program's a total success story. You know, I haven't touched a drink since whatever. I got out of hospital um, ten, uh, just under two weeks ago after another 10-day detox. Yeah. You know? This is, and I just want to circle back to what you said earlier on. I, I, I do see you as a um, quite a good success story because... You know, every now and then, I reckon it, uh, I'm going to guess here and say I reckon three or four times. You know, I'll, I'll be scrolling through Facebook, or once you sent me a message saying heading back into the clinic, dropped off the wagon. See you in ten days. And yeah. I look at that, and I, I don't um, look. I'm not getting out the party poppers and celebrating, <laughs> but I, I actually go, "That's cool, awesome," because yeah. you know of. I, I don't need, um, and, you know, society doesn't need to worry about you because you've got this, okay, um, I've fallen off, I need to go back to get some more treatment. So I see no difference than that as someone who's a, a, a runner and they keep pulling the hamstring. Oh, I'm going, not running for a week, got to go back to the physio. It's the same yeah. thing. You've recognised you've got an issue there, um, an issue. Do I want to use that? I don't like to use that <laughs> 
that's um that's poor poor um you've got that um i don't know what's the what's the correct words to use it's 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 an addiction um so you got that addiction there um it overpowered you momentarily you get back on the drink but then you recognize that which is just so incredibly important so i you know i reckon you are a success story Thanks, man. And this is where a lot of people don't like um, 12-step programs because you, you count days, like you count sober days. And whenever you have a bust, you've got to, like you um, like they say in, um, what's that film, Pacific Rim? You know, with yep. the robots and the sea creatures and that, where Idris Elba comes out and says, reset the clock. Yep. It's like that. And a lot of people get it in their head, like this black and white thinking that, However sober, and I used to be like this. Um, say I might have had eight months sober, and then I then I'll have a binge or I'll have a bust or something. It doesn't mean the previous eight months is then flushed down the toilet. Correct it means I have to take a bit of a hit to my pride. Yeah, and get a bit humble and say sorry. Not sorry, but you know, hey, I, I busted again. I'm back to starting on day one. But shouldn't if, that with you putting your hand up? and saying, I need to go back. See, to me, that's not an ego thing. And granted, I'm not in your shoes, and I want to make that very clear. I just find it interesting that um, you say you've taken a hit to your ego. To me, in the way I think, that should be a boost to your ego because you are good enough to go, I need to go back to the clinic for another detox. Like and, I said, and it's that, a very, very positive thing. Or else, if you don't do that, you could find yourself sitting in the dark drinking drinking bottles of whatever. Yeah, and um, that's that's um, that's the thing. It, it's and and it basically becomes drinking for effect. So, and part of part of the progression for me was like um, you know from beer to wine to to hard liquor to spirits. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it very much parallels for me that my, my mental health journey because after that bridge incident that I was talking about, I probably said the three, or actually before that, when I was actually diagnosed with PTSD, I knew something was wrong. I mean, I tried to go to work one morning and ended up curled up in the fetal position on the kitchen floor, crying my eyes out, so just saying I can't do this anymore. And that was the time I probably uttered three ver- the three hardest words I've ever said, which was, please help me. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know how old you are, but I'm of an age, like I'm 55. And when I grew up, it was an era of boys don't cry. No one else wants to know your problems. Stiff upper lip. Um, the military in the 80s, you know, to, even though we never went to war, um, it was still that, you know, and I've heard there are still some dinosaurs out there in the job that someone puts their hand up. You know, they get brave enough to say, I'm having problems, whatever that problem might be. And the boss says, you know, put a teaspoon of concrete in your next can of Coke and harden up. Yeah. You know, and that uh, that was the attitude that prevailed. Well, you know, that, that, that's how I came in through the military and corrections and even my early days in the police force, it was that attitude, you know? So it was really, it was almost like I didn't want to, and 
again, ego speaking here, I didn't want to make myself feel vulnerable or weakened, like yeah. weak in someone's eyes, like that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what society deems us to be at times, and especially yeah. being um, male, uh, being a you know the male-dominated industry with a history of what we have, you know, mental health. You know, it, it is that. It's harden up. Um, yeah. You'll be right. Push through. Go get a gut full of piss and push through. So, yeah, you know, and, and this is why, um, you know, we sit down, we have these conversations that's recorded and we're going to put it out there for, for people to listen to. And, you know, times have changed a hell of a lot since um, you and me first started, and we, we, which is very much for the positive. But, you know, there, there are still, like, there's people out there that think the world's flat. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. okay, so are we going to change everyone's mind? No. Can we help those who want to be helped? Absolutely. Can we give the confidence of those to look at their own um, mental health, look at their own drinking habits, look at their own you know, destructive behaviours that they might be starting to partake in, um, they don't have to tell anyone. They can do it all by themselves. But by having these conversations, we can be giving them the opportunity to look at themselves and go, okay, I'm going to change here. Uh, so uh, that's the reflective part of it. That's the great thing about podcasts like this too, Mark, um, concentrating on mental health and people's... Um, you know, the, the, those people who don't quite fit with the norm of society, whatever that is these days. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. It, it seems like we're dancing on quicksand at the moment, you know, in relation to a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, like, like the stigma of mental health, alcoholism and addiction, it thrives in isolation. It thrives in the dark, you know. So I'm now all about getting it out into the light, you know. Get getting it out there. Say you've got and put your hand up and say, "I need help." For whatever yeah. thing you might have, be it mental health, be it an addiction, be it alcoholism. And my first rehab that I did was on the. Actually, I had a four week break between Ward Seventeen and then going into a rehab. <laughs> well, it ended up being a thirty eight day rehab because it was a ten day detox and then a twenty eight day rehab program. But it was really humbling because, and it changed. It changed one major attitude for me because as a police officer, um, I've dealt with drug addicts and drunks in the past. And we don't normally, well, we never see them at their best. If, if the cops have been called, it's because things have got to a, to yeah. a pretty heightened level. Pear shape significantly. And, yeah. And look, I've since that, um, you know, and there's been a number of rehabs and detoxes in, in between there. Um, I've made some like people I, I've lifelong friends. They're not mm -hmm. perfect, but you know when they're when you see them off the gear, whatever their gear might be. Um, when you see them off the gear and you get to see what these people are really like, some of them are fantastic. Yeah, you know some of the best people I've met, and but it's also saddening to because, um, for instance without naming names, 27-year-old girl, um, off the alcohol for three months, she grabbed a bottle of vodka and never regained consciousness. Yeah. 
Um, Which is just the height of tragedy. Yeah, and, um, you know, we, um, again, not naming names, but we recently lost a colleague back in December, a decorated, yeah. decorated police veteran. Yeah. And they, that, that person couldn't handle their demons in terms yeah. of whole. And I think their father found them um, lying on the floor of their bungalow. Yeah. You know? Um, utterly, utterly it's never... You know, and having been in the highway patrol, I've seen the results of drink driving. But now living what I've lived, it's sometimes, it's, it goes, it, as we've talked about already, it's, it's gone beyond a choice. Um, because I remember, I remember saying to someone, you know, hang on, I choose to pick up that drink. And it's, and he just, he just looked at me, smiled and kept speaking. And after a number of years in, in the program, it's, it, it you know, I've come to learn that I, the, the, I don't have choice in the matter. Yeah. It's the alcohol. Um, whatever. Yeah. And some people get addicted to different things. Like we were talking about running before. Some people become sports addicts. Yeah. You know, and that can be unhealthy in its own, in its own right. It's when, as we spoke about before, it's when something becomes a, a requirement, basically. You have to do it to feel normal. Yeah. Yeah. So after drinking... Prior to your first treatment, did you feel normal after drinking? Um, or what, what? What was it about the drinking that you had to do? What, what, what it does did it make you feel? What alcohol does to me is is that it, it, it stops it stops feelings of any sort. That's there. There was a line out of um, if you're familiar with a cartoon Family Guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, there's a scene. There was a scene in one of them. They're in the bar and. I'm not sure who it was, but someone said, let's drink beer till we don't feel feelings anymore. And whoever wrote that line knew something about alcoholism. Yeah. Because the analogy I use is like, I'm a castle surrounded by a mode of alcohol. And my, barbarian, my barbarians at the gates are emotions of any sort. I just don't want to feel. Mm. And for a few short hours, those feelings are taken away. And yeah, you, you've heard the saying, you know, drown your sorrows. The unfortunate thing about that is they come back in with a tide and they normally come in a lot, a lot friggin' worse. Yeah. Um, and that's why, that's how I, well, that's why I can understand some people turn to having a drink first thing in the morning. Yeah. You know, some of the stories I've read of these people who they have to drink in order to function. Yeah. Um, you know, I always, and, and that was a big thing of, that was part of my denial was that, I never drank at work. Um, I, I um, you know, I only drank in the evenings, sort of thing. And all I was doing was kidding myself. So that that's just a um, uh, a justification to yourself that you're not drinking at work, so therefore it's okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look at me. I've got my. I own my own house. I own a car and a motorcycle. I'm holding down a job. How can I be alcoholic? I just, I just like, I just like a drink. So the terminology functioning alcoholic, is that what you're alluding <laughs> to then? Is that, is that a genuine like terminology to use or is that just something that's been made up and people have run with? I think, I think it's people who want to try and justify themselves. You know, that, that, that word again, justify, justification. 
Yeah. I, I, I'm, I can't be an alcoholic because I'm, I, I hold down job X, Y, Z. Uh, so for someone like me who's not addicted to alcohol, can I, should I, can I, and should I use the terminology functioning alcoholic or is a person just a plain alcoholic? Um, use what you want to use, man. That's, yeah. that's my thing. I'm, I'm not the boss of anybody. <laughs> um, so if, if if that's the term that a person chooses to use, then that and that's entirely up. But to like, no, for me though, like so, if I if I because the thought that came to my head before, and this is this is about my education as well as anyone else who listens to this. So previously, I, I would have said that you were like a functioning alcoholic. You're working, you got a house, you got a car, you walk yeah. your dogs, you know, you're married, yeah. you're doing all this. So yeah. you're not that traditional. Um, what society deems to be an alcoholic is that person in the park with a brown paper bag, shoddy clothing, hasn't shaved, raggy hair. That's yeah. an alcoholic. Hey, not nothing wrong with not shaving, mate. <laughs> nothing wrong with not shaving. Oh, no. No, well, no, he wasn't <laughs> a manicured beard. Yeah, but um, and the, the story behind this beard actually goes back to that bridge incident. I haven't shaved since that day. Oh, fair income. Yeah. I mean, I've kept the sides clean, but yeah. lengthwise... It's been about five and a half years. That's gold. So, oh, it's symb- 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 symbiotic, if that's the word. It's symbolic, symb- yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's, it's my reminder of um, not doing something. And yeah, the, and you know, I was, I, I, I'd, had, I'd had a gut full of piss that night too. Yeah. Um, and then again, you know, the, the, the ultimate hypocrisy jumping in my car and driving. Having, yeah. You know, being. Highway Patrol, haven't knowing all this stuff, you know, yeah. uh, but and not having any consideration at all. If I had have been pulled up by my colleagues, and I mean, you can't obviously times change with the police force, but you know, back in the day, having to put my colleagues in a very difficult position, yeah, of um, you know, what what do we do with this? You know, he's a member, he's, he's in a bad way. What are we going to do with him? Yeah. Now that, that just again, that circles back to the effect that alcohol will have on you. You you will lose all of the the, the sense of, um, you know, decision making abilities and not real flash. Yeah, well, <laughs> again, um, my good judgment is soluble in alcohol. <laughs> so, yeah, basically, it dissolves. Yeah. Um, you know, and um, but but that's the thing. Uh, the and, th- and thanks before, again, circling, as to use your term, circling back, thanks for calling me a success story because the one thing I've never lost is hope. Yeah. So even though, you know, I've got, I'm in double figures for rehab and detoxes now. And I don't yeah. say that to be proud, look at me, you know, I've, you know, because I've heard heartbreaking, st- one, one bloke in particular, and he did look like your typical, it was a rumpled three-piece suit, tie askew, wearing a little trilby hat. Yeah. And he's sitting on the edge of his bed in this detox rehab facility. And I introduced myself and um, he introduced himself. And I said, oh, you know, in a bad way, mate. And he goes, oh, I just come in here to take, take I, I need a bit of a break. And once I'll get myself right again and I'll go back out there. You know, and that broke my heart when he said those words to yeah. me. You know, it's like, my goodness, you, you, what hope do you have? You know, and, and that's, it's that, that ancient Japanese proverb, um, fall down seven times, stand up eight. Yeah. You know, no matter what, well, this is my, this is just to my way of thinking. And, you know, probably some people would just call me stubborn, 
<laughs> but, um, you know, it's that no matter how many times life knocks me down or I knock myself down by picking up a drink, I'll get back up again. You know, yeah. I've, learned, I've learned now that humility, being humble is not the same as humiliation. Yeah. You know, it's not being used as a doormat. It's not bowing, scraping and begging. It's, it's that being big enough to put your hand up and saying, I've got a problem and I, that I need help with. Because well, that... Takes, that takes some some to courage to do that. It takes yeah, courage to put your hand up. Yeah, and early, earlier this year, I don't know if you remember, I, I'm pretty sure I put it on the Code 9 page. Um, back in May, I had open heart surgery. Yep. And what happened was in March, my GP, or just regular checkup. And this is, again, something, guys, if you're over 50, get a regular checkup with your doctor. I've never smoked in my life. I've never had heart problems. Heart problems are not part of my genetic heritage. No one in my family and living memory has died of a heart failure or heart problems. Um, and the doctor just put his stethoscope on my chest and said, you have a heart murmur. And my first word, the first word out of my mouth was bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I said, do that, do that again. And he did. And he put the stethoscope on each side of my neck and on my heart. He goes, no, you've got a heart murmur. And he said, and I was totally asymptomatic. I was going to the gym three times a week, pushing some pretty hefty weights for me. Yeah. And, um, you know, not feeling. And he said, do you feel lightheaded? Do you get out of breath? Are your ankles swollen up? I said, uh, no. <laughs> so I had an ultrasound. And what happened? That was in March of this year. And seven weeks later, I'm on an operating table at St. Vinnie's Private having my chest cut open yeah. to have a valve replaced. Because what was happening was what the heart murmur was, was blood regurgitating or falling backwards from the atrium from the left atrium back into the left ventricle because yep. the valve wasn't closing properly as it should. Yeah. And you know, that I, I could, I could, if, if I hadn't, I guess if I didn't have the attitude I had through all this, the, through the journey of alcohol recovery, mental health recovery, the PTSD, you know, I could whinge and moan and say, look at what life's thrown at me. Yeah. When, when I went back, I actually shook my doctor's hand because if he hadn't have picked that up, God knows how long I would have gone. And, and, and for the condition that I had, I was more likely to have a stroke rather than a heart attack. Yeah. Um, apparently that's what the valve thing is. And, you know, and this is what led to my last detox was I, I, six weeks after me, I got out of hospital, the tickers back to normal. Gyms have opened up again, then they closed again. <laughs> but I guess I got a bit, I had the attitude of not only have I looked death in the eye, I spat in his frigging face. Yeah. And I'm going to go out, I deserve this. So the same brain that sent me to hospital in seven weeks from the initial diagnosis to have you know life-saving surgery, the same brain that did that for my survival then thinks it's a good idea to go out and get a bottle of something that I know I'm addicted to and if I keep drinking, will kill me. Sorry, mate. You just froze there for a tick. Oh. You just said um, about this, you've recovered from all of this. Yeah, so, so, so the same brain that got me to hospital um, within seven weeks of an initial diagnosis of a heart murmur, so having you know open heart surgery, that same brain 
six weeks after I'm out of hospital, thinks it's a good idea to celebrate life because I've spat in the face of death to go out and buy a bottle of the stuff that I know will kill me. It's given me a fatty liver, fatty pancreas. And, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, the, and it, ha- it was one Friday night, then it was the next Friday night, then it was Friday and Wednesday, then it was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, then it became a daily thing again. And three weeks back into it, I actually tried to stop and found that I couldn't again. So when you after all this knowledge, this is yeah. all this knowledge, knowing all this stuff, self-knowledge is not the answer to alcoholism or addiction. Um, so throughout all this time, like the six weeks after the heart operation, starts off on the Friday and then the Wednesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah. At any time during now, are you consciously aware that you shouldn't be doing this? Uh, yeah, there's there's a little voice in my head thinking I'm not being too I'm not being terribly bright, here. but it's okay. I've got off it before. I'll get off it again. So again, that justification to have another yeah. drink. Yeah, yeah, and this and this is what makes it so dangerous. And you know, the, 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 this this again was again one of the humbling the, the the humbling part of the humbling experience at my first rehab was the only difference between me and the the people who are on a different substance trying to recover is the fact that mine's legal. Yeah. I mean, and look, look at this, there's actually been experts out there that are saying, yeah, you know, people, people are saying, particularly at the moment in living in the, living through the Corona apocalypse, <laughs> you know, um, why are bottle shops deemed essential? Why are bottle shops open? Because alcohol is one of the most dangerous substances yeah. a cold turkey and withdraw from. Because no. you can go into seizures that will kill you. No. You are if sorry if you're the type of alcoholic I am. Yeah. If you drink as much as I did, um, you know, and that's why I put my hand up because I know I need to physically separate from alcohol. Go to a clinic that's a medically supervised detox. I'm on Valium for a couple of for three to four days, just to stop the shakes and bring the anxiety down, and then I'm good. Yeah. Um, and and again, you know that. That's the thing, is that never giving up hope. You know, so is, is there a trigger point where, you know, you're subconsciously, subconsciously aware that you're not being real bright here at the moment, what you're just saying about when you've started <laughs> drinking again? Yeah. At what point does that subconscious then become that conscious thought, oh, hang on? Like, is, is there a trigger point? Is there... Like, I mean, what it was when I tried to put it down in that third or fourth week and realised that I couldn't, like, again, like that that time happened again, about 3.34 in the afternoon, my hands were getting a bit shaky, my anxiety went through the roof. Yeah. And shit, if I don't get a drink, I'm, you know, it's, it's a really hard position to be in, Mark, where you know that drinking will kill you if you keep going the way I was going. Yeah. But I'm thinking at the same time, if I don't get a drink, I'll die. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a total, it's a, being addicted to anything is so messed up, um, you know, and people think it's an act of choice or an act of willpower or something like that. Kudos to those people that can give up cold turkey. You know, my hat's off to them. Yeah. Those people that have been where I've been and then go back after a couple of years and can enjoy a glass of wine with dinner. I've tried that stuff, man. Yeah, no. Everything. I've tried moderation. I've tried... 
I have to go the hard line now. I, I, you know, I used to joke, I used to have this joke with myself of, you know, like going back to the bottle and waking up the next morning thinking, oh, yeah, that's why I don't drink anymore. Yeah. I just done the night before. You know, this is, this is the real, and this is the hardest thing about addiction. You know, the, 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 the thinking that, or my brain telling me that, oh, you've got this now, you've been off it for X amount of time, let's give it another go. Yeah. Sort yeah. of thing. And it kind of justification. Yeah. And it's like that part of your brain. And, and like, you know, the, those MRIs, those brain, I forget the exact name of them, but the, the, the colors of the brain of a brain that's got affected by PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a similar thing with alcoholism and addiction, you know, that it, it actually is an addicted brain. Um, you know, and, and someone could be normal in every other aspect of their life, except they use a substance. You know, they, yeah. they cannot, they're, they're hooked on a substance that they just cannot get away from. And well, sorry, that's not true. Millions of people have successfully stopped drinking or using um the, the the drug of their choice and um you know there's a whole lot of different 12-step programs out there from anything from sex addicts to overeating to undereating. yeah um you know and i remember talking <laughs> talking to someone who was a member of another 12-step fellowship and um because eating is an essential part of living you know we can't we, we don't eat we don't live Got eight. And um, when I said to her, you know, what's this thing with overeating? How can you get addicted to that? And she said, and, and, you know, come back from that. And she said, well, you're an alcoholic. Can you imagine having just three glasses of beer a day and stopping at that? She said, that's what I have to live with. You know, calorie controlled meals, you know, you know watching what goes in. Everything measured. Conscious of that every single meal, every single day for the rest of your life. You know, as yeah, a, it's, uh, <laughs> awesome. it's exhausting. Yeah. Be, because alcohol is basically a in, in its purest form, alcohol is a poison. Yeah. Um, um, and denatured ethyl alcohol will kill you pretty much. Um, but add it with some potatoes and or some corn mash or you know, and distill it, put it through a thing, and you know it becomes something that takes can take you to a happy place or can take you beyond a happy place to an angry place. And again, you know, for 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 the job we've done, um, from, I remember working. My first police station was Geelong, <laughs> and Eastern Beach on Friday nights during Friday and Saturday nights during summer. During the summer holidays, bloody hell! It was just it was just one long fight. Yeah. You know, pretty much the cells were always full, and it was one long fight. And um, you know, I thought I, uh, you know, and again, yeah, like I said, that's the fun with problems part. And because you know, you might enjoy your drinking, get into a fight, end up spending four hours in the cells and whatever. Um, but. But yeah. with that, people used to use that as a badge of honor. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> yeah, and that's that's a society societal issue in that getting locked up by the coppers for four hours because you're that pissed you couldn't stand up. Yeah. You know, 
for a while, um, or yeah, you know, when I was, I don't go out anymore at nightclubs, obviously, but certainly when I was younger, you know, people would wear that as a badge of honour, yeah. which is just a bizarre, bizarre way of thinking. Yeah. And how did society get to that? Like it's, as you say, you know, yeah. like it, essentially it's a poison and it causes untold damage to the community, yet we still celebrate it. Like it's. Yeah. And it's everywhere. It's, and yeah. advertising about it is everywhere. And the, 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 the thing with it is, and I, I want to make something clear here that, I'm not a member of any like temperance society that thinks alcohol should be banned or prohibited. Yeah. In any, and I don't hate people who drink. You know, I, I don't, I might be a bit envious of them now and again and thinking, gee, I wish I could got stop at two glasses of wine and enjoy it. I can't. Yeah. You know, that, that idea has to be smashed out of me um, that, uh, that I can go back to, because I've tried it. I've, I've just given you a story of like I had life saving surgery and the same brain that wanted me to get to hospital as quick as I could you know, to, to, to save me life is the same brain that brought me back to something that would in, will yeah. in the long run end up in me in an insane asylum, asylum, jail or dead. Well, that just shows the power of it, doesn't it? Yeah. The absolute power. So what, um, what advice would you give to someone who uh, is starting, well, I suppose there's a couple of different... Um, one where it's starting to take hold or someone where it's, it's fully taken hold like yourself? Look, there's, there's various tests out there. I remember <laughs> coming back from um, being deployed with the International Deployment Group. And when I went back to police welfare to do me like final debrief, they give you a list of 40 questions and it's all about to do with alcohol and how you drink and your drinking habits. And I got 36 out of 40. <laughs> and I, that's the best test score I've ever bloody got. But it wasn't, a, it wasn't in, not in a good way. Um, so there are tests out there. They're on the internet. Um, there's uh, pamphlets put out by Alcoholics Anonymous that are, are 20 questions to ask yourself. Um, but really it boils down for me two things. That if when you honestly, genuinely, heartfeltly want to put the drink down, you can't. And that when you do drink, no matter what you swear to yourself, what limit you put on yourself, um, you end up drinking more than you want to. Mm. And you might want to start taking a look at yourself. To accountability to yourself. Yeah. And, and if it's costing you more than money, if you're finding that you're isolating more and more while you're drinking, you're hiding it. Um, like I, when, when I used to find it easier to go out to places and not drink, make an excuse to leave early and come home and drink the way I want. Yeah. You know, alone, and that was alone in that dark room with the curtains drawn. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that, that's, and that's, that's where I automatically go to now. And I hide it from the, from the, I try, I'm all, we've been married 22 years this year for crying out loud. And, you know, good on her and any partner who, I guess that's because we're a bit old fashioned and we're trying to, you know, we, we, we don't just drop things. We don't just, it's not the case of dumping it at the first sign of trouble, you know. I've got to work on myself to help, you know, to, to, to work on us, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, makes complete sense. Um, and, and that's, you know, but ultimately I've got to stop for me. I've got to be the reason I stop because, and it's like that ripple effect in the pond. Because once I get myself right, and this has happened to me during the long terms of sobriety that I have had. Life's got better. 
um, be, you know, I feel feelings again and good ones. I can laugh properly. Yeah. You know, um, and it's like, again, um, if people on with PTSD or mental health problems who are on antidepressants, it kind of takes away, it takes away all feelings. Yeah. You know, there's no happiness, but there's no joy either. Yeah. So sorry, there's no sadness, but there's no yeah. real joy either. It just it just makes things shades of grey. Yeah. Um. You know, and I never set out to become an alcoholic. I never. You know, it, it wasn't. Yeah, you know, I didn't. I didn't tell my careers advisor at school when I was in year twelve that by the age of fifty five, oh, I was going to be double figures of rehab and detoxes. Yeah. You know. <laughs> No one goes out, but that's the progressive nature of this illness. Yeah, and, and it's an interesting point. Like you, you say, uh, uh, I mean, uh, I didn't join the police force to be um, later on be diagnosed with PTSD, depression, anxiety, and spend a couple of weeks in the hospital. That, that's, that wasn't on the agenda when I was going through the yeah. academy. But, you know, because ultimately I'll take responsibility uh, and say, so I didn't look after myself. I didn't look at the signs and symptoms, and that's what happened. So yeah. it's, it's the same with, I suppose, any addiction, um, drug, alcohol, gambling, sex, whatever. Um, if you're not constantly reevaluating, if you are, um, if you do drink, if you do gamble, um, et cetera, if you, you've got to keep evaluating where you are with that. And if it's taking yeah. control of your life, well, then you, there's an issue there. Yeah, and you know that there's the saying: if alcohol is costing you more than money, start having a look at yeah as well. You know? Good, good um, terminology. And, and and the thing is too, and again, I want to be clear here that even people who are classed as heavy drinkers are not always alcoholics. No, it, it could take there could be something like a life event, an ultimatum from a partner um, that they can just stop and quit then and there and that they, they never touch another another drop in their life yeah um there's a story in a book that's part of the program that i work where this businessman um and again he's he's not named um he alcohol was affecting him and he swore off he did not drink for 25 years yeah. he, he retired at the age of 55 and as the story goes the carpet slippers came on, the liquor cabinet got opened, and he was dead in four years. Yeah. From alcoholism. Yeah. That's that's the you know, that's the the deadly nature of what of what myself and others are up against. So it's a lifelong journey for you now? Yeah, definitely, mate. Definitely. But again, to reiterate that Japanese proverb, fall down seven times, get up eight. I've I've still got hope. You know, I I'm I'm never gonna give in to despair. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's like they told us in the PTSD clinic, you know, you're never going to be cured of PTSD, yeah. but it can, it can be managed. And it's the same with alcoholism. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's an illness that can be cured, but it can be managed. Well, cure is a big word. And, and personally, I, I, I don't, I don't like the word cure when it comes to PTSD. Um, yeah. even though, you know, like I'm, I'm in a fantastic place at the moment and, um, but I know well the, the way I described to a mate the other day my internal war is over yeah. however I've got a good peacekeeping force in place and that that's peacekeeping what you force need. will be there until I'm no longer breathing yep. hopefully <laughs> when I'm enemy 90s, 100s, whatever whatever I live to Yeah. 
and and you know and people call it different names you call it your peacekeeping force some people call it a toolkit or toolbox yeah you know it's just and and there are there are dozens of different ways to get and remain clean and sober yeah you know some work some work better for others but i put everything i can into my toolkit and a lot of that toolkit like i said I've, i said it before that you know, my my addiction sometimes runs parallel with my mental health um and the and the tools that i learned at um ward 17 have been tools i've put in place and have been very useful for me in my addiction yeah um you know so yeah it, it's it's the the danger for me the danger for any addict is to is when you fool yourself into think you're traveling well and you start getting complacent yeah and start falling off you get further away from your program or you get further away you know your peacekeeping force drops away one by one yeah sort of thing and then there's all of a sudden there's that horrific awakening where it's like oh crap what have i done yeah you know, uh, and I think compla- complacency is the enemy in yeah. in both aspects, in both mental health. And, you know, it's when you think you're traveling well, that I think you've got to be at your wariest. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I, I think you've got to double down on all your, um, uh, all, all the things that you do to try and keep yourself as healthy as what you can be. So when, when you are in a good place, that's the time to accelerate it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know one of the podcasts I listen to um, is Jocko Willink. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, and he he talks about um, he talks about the difference between motivation and uh, discipline, and it's what we've just kind of it's what this we've kind of been talking about it, but not in these exact terms. But you know, it's not about motivation; it's about discipline. Discipline, you know, and you know, if you're a runner, you're not always motivated to get out there and. But if you've got the discipline to get to put your runners on, tie them up, get out there when it's piss and rain and go for your run, then all of a sudden, you know, half a K, a K into your run, you realise that's why you're out there doing it. Yeah. Right? That's when the motivation comes from the discipline. Yeah. You yeah. know, and that, that's one of, one of his, he's, he's, he's actually written a book with that title, uh, Discipline Equals Freedom. Yeah. Um, it's all about discipline because motivation only lasts X amount of time. Yeah, can't be motivated all the time. Doesn't work. No, the, the habits that you create um, that uh, ensures that you, you continue along the way of giving yourself the best chance of for you to stay sober. Yeah, and and that again runs parallel to mental health, and it's it's not if 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 for a real alcoholic. Um, it was just a matter of putting down the drink. Um, there wouldn't be a need for 12-step programs and detox clinics and rehabs and stuff like that. Um, it's about a lifestyle change. Like you just said, habits, forming new habits to replace the old dangerous ones. Yeah. And, you know, I, I heard someone say once that, you know, if you've got a drunken horse thief and he just stops drinking, you've still got a horse thief. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And probably a better one because he's not pissed. Fair <laughs> point. Fair point. Um, so, so it is. It's about changing lifestyle. Yeah. It's about a lifestyle change and, and, and replacing bad habits with good ones. And that 
you know, like I said, I'd like to say I've got it down pat, but I haven't. But I've, I've learned enough to know when I'm traveling rough that there are places out there and I can now put my hand up. Yeah. I've, I now have enough self-realization or, or belief in myself or knowledge about myself that I know that when I get to a certain stage that I can put my hand up. And, and, you know, every time I leave a detox or rehab, I say, that's it. I'm saying goodbye to this place. I'm never going back there, you know? Um, and so sometimes that can be a difficult, it's got to be about that to just nick away at your pride enough. I'm not saying be proud of yourself. <clears throat> Sorry. I'm not saying not be proud of yourself. I'm, I'm, I mean, pride when it becomes, unhealthy yeah um you know you're, you're you're too proud to stand up and say you need help you know that that's so i've got to take a bit of a hit there and go to me gp and say look i need a referral because you're not going to walk out of the, the the rehab joint and go thanks for the uh thanks for the space see you in six months set yourself up for failure no, and that's that's what I said about that heartbreaking story about that bloke I met in there. Yeah, and that's exactly what he was doing. Yeah, and you know, to go in there to dry out, get yourself a bit healthy, and it must, and for the people that work in the in these fields, it must be, you know, it, that, you know, I, I, I sometimes wonder what, what what goes through their head. You know, do they wonder? And I, I felt I I felt that way as a copper sometimes. You know, I come home at night thinking, why do I do this freaking job? Yeah. You know, and I did it basically, um, as you said at the very start, and I guess we'll finish this off how we started it, is to, I joined it because I wanted to help people. Yeah. You know, to help those that weren't in a position to help themselves for whatever reason. Yeah. whole host of reasons. You know, yeah. And. Um, but I, I now know, and won't go into details, but I, I now know that you were using your experience outside of policing and um the adf and your prison water um experience in your personal experience with um being addicted to alcohol you're now helping other people overcome their addictions or help them through the journey their own journeys yeah. so mate all power to you I, I reckon it's a fascinating story um and we'll just finish up but i reckon it's a as i said it's a fascinating story for me because it's something i've got no knowledge of I think you're an incredible success story. Um, yeah, although I, I hope I never see any posts from you or get any messages from you ever again saying that um, you're falling off and you're going back in the detox. But I know that you are going to do that if you get to that position. And as you said, it's hope. And you know, if you get knocked down 10 times, you, I know you'll get up the 11th time. So, mate, all power to you. Um, any final words you'd like to... Dish out. Never give up hope and never be afraid to put your hand up and ask for help because that, that almost killed me in more ways than one. Uh, yeah, sorry, in, for, more re, for more than one reason. Yeah. You know, never be too, yeah, never be too afraid or, or make yourself vulnerable enough to, to reach out for help. Yeah. Always put the hand up because there are, there are people out there who will help you. There are people who've been where you've been. And that was something, sorry, just to add one thing, that was something I, I always, people who've walked the walk, they've got credibility. Yeah. You know, the people who've been there and done it. And sorry, that's not to poo-poo psychologists. Yeah. 
help no, other people, true. but but you know most of their learning is from books and university. The 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 thing about the the, the program that I'm in is that it's addicted people and alcoholics helping other addicted people and other alcoholics. Okay. There's and a lot of power in that. They're the people I listen to because they're your peers. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, and I, well, I believe it's one of the reasons you started, you founded Code 9. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a peer support page. Um, you know, because people have people, there are people out there who've been where you are now. And if you're listening to this and you're struggling and you need help, reach out. It's there. Yeah. But sometimes this thing, sometimes this thing feels like it weighs 500 kilo. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I don't have the energy or strength just to push a couple of buttons on it and dial someone. Yeah. You know, reach out, never, never despair, never give up hope. And there's always people out there to help. So thanks a lot for coming on, Mark. Brilliant. Thanks for your time, Matty. Massively appreciated. No worries, mate. Talk soon. Will do. See you around the traps. See you, mate.